Good morning. We are starting a new study today, and this is uh, one that I, I'm really excited about. We're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah. If you've got a Bible, uh, you might want to have it open to Nehemiah, but you might want to be ready to go other places. But I'm not going to take you too far, I promise you. We're, we're going we're gonna to stay within reason. I'm, I'm, I don't have uh, more than, what, 30 or 40 slides today, so I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't have anywhere near that number. Um, but I, I do want to give us an, a proper introduction to this book and also, uh, you know, giving us some background information, how we got here. Uh, but also, I want to be able to get through the first chapter. So it's a good thing that football season's over, right? Because uh, that means that I can go until, well, I, I, I guess we're, we're teaching, uh, I'm, I'm teaching the purity class tonight, 6 o'clock, so we'll be out of here by, by 6. Uh, but yeah, we, we do have a lot to cover. But, um, you know, the book of, of Nehemiah, uh, the reason I chose it is because um, it's, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. You know, all the books of the Bible, every single word in the Bible has practical use and application. But there are some, uh, some books that really speak to a person. Maybe I would say it, uh, it can even stir the heart of a person when they read a particular book, you know, whatever the case, whatever you want to call it, lighting a fire under somebody, you know, whatever you want to call it. The book of Nehemiah inspires me. The book of Nehemiah excites me. And, you know, the first time I read it, you know, I, I didn't read it uh, until five or no, six or seven years ago when I was in an Old Testament uh, history class and one of the assignments for the class was reading the Old Testament from beginning to end uh, through the, throughout the semester. And, you know, some of these minor prophets I had never read before. Uh, so I, I read it, and I, I was really captivated by, uh, by this book. And actually, there were, there were several books that caught my attention for the first time in my life, even though I may have read them before. Uh, Proverbs, one of my favorite Old Testament books, uh, Isaiah, First and Second Kings, and Nehemiah. Uh, now, Nehemiah is this study that I've just been chomping at the bit to get started with for, for almost a year. Uh, it's been almost a year. A year ago, I thought, you know, this would be a, a great study. It, it speaks to, uh, to the mission of our church and the vision of our church because it's a story about God's redemption. It's a story about his redemption, his promises, his faithfulness, his plans, and how he carries out uh, his plans. It's a book about the type of, of great work that God can do through people who are just like you and me. It's a book that shows the heart of a servant, and it's a book that shows what a person with a servant's heart is capable of achieving by God's power and by his grace. It's a book about restoring something back to the way it was intended to be, the way that God wants it to be. And I know that I probably don't need to say it because you already know it, uh, even if you, you maybe don't acknowledge it consciously all the time, but every single one of us is in this constant struggle to get back to the way that we know we're supposed to be. About 500 years before Christ was born, the city of Jerusalem was not the way that it was supposed to be. In fact, it was in shambles. It had been torn down completely. And the reason that that's significant is because Jerusalem is not just any old city. Jerusalem is more uh, than just any other city. It's the city that represents the place where God wants to dwell, and it represents his indwelling presence. God specifically said that the temple, the house of the Lord, was to be built in the city of 
Jerusalem. That was explicitly what he requested, and that's exactly what Solomon ended up doing. That's what we saw in our last study. Uh, That's where God wanted his presence to be represented. Of course, it wasn't limited to that place. It's, it's all symbolic. We know that uh, you know, God's ultimate desire was not to dwell in a city, but to dwell within his people, you and me. And that's exactly what happens the moment a person responds to the Holy Spirit's prompting, the Holy Spirit stirring their heart by putting their faith, their trust for salvation in Jesus Christ. And when that happens... When a person responds in faith, God takes up permanent residence within that person. God desires to dwell within the human spirit, and that only happens by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. And it is totally, this, this whole concept is totally contrary to the type of humanistic thinking that supposes that we belong to ourselves. And that everything is really all about us. And so we make the rules. We'll do whatever makes us happy. We'll live life the way we want to live it. And this is all totally contrary to the life that God wants to take over, to the person that he wants to dwell within. And that's why Paul wrote to the Colossians, God willed to make it known to the saints, that is, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's from Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And so with all of that in mind, the book of Ezra starts with Jerusalem being in complete and utter ruins. Yeah, I, I said Ezra, and you're thinking, wait a minute, aren't we doing a study in Nehemiah? Yeah, we're, we're getting there. But Ezra and Nehemiah actually go hand in hand. Uh, in some ancient manuscripts, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are of the same book. Uh, But I think they are properly separated because there is definitely a change of authorship uh, when you get to Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah writes Nehemiah, and Ezra uh, claims to have written Ezra. So it seems like there's a good split there, but uh, you need to understand that Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. They were kind of like co-workers, uh, prophets at the same time. Uh, And the book of Nehemiah takes place about 15 years after the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is about the temple. The whole theme of of Ezra is about the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt and restored. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we should be asking ourselves, why did it need to be rebuilt? Why was Jerusalem in ruins? Why did it need to be restored? So let me back up 1,500 years approximately to the first glimpse that we get of Jewish history when Abraham had this life-altering encounter with God, and part of that life-altering encounter that he had with God involved a promise that God made to Abraham and to his descendants, and that is that they were going to get this nice chunk of land set aside for all of them by God. A promise that was repeated to Isaac, a promise that was repeated to, to Moses, and of course that land was Israel, the land of, of Israel. And uh, about 1,000 years after Abraham, Israel had finally become this serious uh, world power. They'd they'd become a a very strong country in that region of the world under the successive kingships of King Saul, uh, King David, and then King Solomon. 
See, David was this fierce warrior uh, who advanced God's purposes with Israel, his plans for Israel, like nobody before him and like nobody since. And when he died, he put the proverbial reins, he put the control of the nation, the kingship, in the hands of his son Solomon. And as we've seen in our previous studies, Solomon, despite being the wisest person in the world, the only exception being Jesus, he spent a huge portion of his later years, his, his older years, uh, badly badly backslidden. Uh, He was completely unfaithful to God, didn't keep his commands, married several foreign wives, uh, built temples to these foreign gods. His sin was so great that God came down and spoke to Solomon face to face and judged him on the spot. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, we read, so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, backslidden, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And so sure enough, when Solomon dies, Israel gets torn into two parts. The north and the south. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In America, we talk a lot about a division between the north and the south. Israel was split into two regions, the north and the south. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel went north to gather in the land of Samaria, and they called themselves Israel, while two of the tribes went south and settled in the region around and including Jerusalem, and they called themselves Judah. And these guys were split apart for a long, long time. Israel's undoing didn't come from enemies on the outside of their borders. No, for a military, they were tough. They were up there with the best. But division came from within. Defeat came from within their own ranks. And so the result was the civil war between the Jews. And as you might imagine, it was absolute chaos uh, Judah represented the faithful remnant, while Israel, the ten tribes that were in the north, completely abandoned God and slipped badly, badly into unfaithfulness. So finally, in 722 B.C., God's judgment upon Israel, the northern tribes uh, that were unfaithful to God, God's judgment upon them finally came in the form of an Assyrian invasion that sent the survivors, if they were lucky enough to survive, running for their lives. And so the ten tribes of Israel were scattered. Basically, they, they ceased to exist as tribes within themselves. They needed to be scattered. A few uh, people that were in the north that were, that were survive, you know, able to survive were able to get far enough south to find safety in Judah uh, this was the land that the Jews inhabited actually for the next two to three hundred years. But by 586 BC, Babylon had become a serious force to be reckoned with, and the Babylonians took all the people uh, in Judah captive under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this was a period known as the Great Babylonian Captivity. And under King Nebuchadnezzar, the temple in Jerusalem was raided. And all this stuff, all the gold, all the silver, all the riches, that had been in the temple when Solomon built it. You know, there was gold, silver, uh, incredible riches. All these things were taken to Babylon. And as they left Jerusalem, as, as the Babylonians uh, finally finished looting Jerusalem, they set fire 
to the temple, burning it to the ground, and they tore down and completely destroyed the wall around the city. See, for a city to have no wall around it meant that it was open for anybody to invade it. The first line of defense is the wall. Because it was high enough that, you know, somebody wants to get in, they're going to have to scale that wall, and somebody's probably going to see them, and who's going to win if, you know, you're looking down, and and they're looking up, and they've got both their hands on a rope, and you're just sitting there looking at them. You're going to win. So the the wall is really, really important. Um, So for a, a city to have no wall meant that it was open to invasion. It was like a country without a military. How safe would we feel with, with no military? That, that's, what they would, that's what they would have felt without a wall. The wall represented safety. That's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. I, I know that he meant to put an ellipsis point in there, in his own imagination. Yeah. Uh, see, from a worldly perspective, we think that money is going to protect us from things, that, that money is like this, this wall that we use to protect ourselves from, from things. But Solomon's quick to point out, basically, <laughs> in your dreams, buddy, it, it doesn't protect you from anything. Uh, and I'm, I'm reminded of the people in Russia uh, about, what, 20 years ago when uh, they woke up one day and all the money that they'd been saving for years um, suddenly wasn't enough to buy a loaf of bread. You know, there were, there were families in Moldova. I went on a mission to Moldova several years, several years ago, and they told me about how, you know, they had money, they had enough money saved up to buy houses, cash. And then they woke up one day, and they couldn't even buy a loaf of bread with it. So yeah, in your dreams, your, your money is, uh, is your protection. So coming from a wealthy and powerful king who had uh, incredible wisdom, I'm inclined to think that he knows what he's talking about. But the point is, a wall is important. Now, as you might imagine, the Jews didn't get to just continue with life as it was once they were taken captive. They became slaves to the Babylonians. Meanwhile, Jerusalem was now a ghost town. It had been abandoned. No wall, nobody's going to go there. Nobody wants to live in a city with no wall. And so over the course of the next 70 years, the Jews, by and large, settled down and got comfortable in Babylon. And it was, as if, it was as if everyone had forgotten the promises that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses uh, for the land of Israel. A few remained faithful. A few of the, the Jews who were in Babylonian captivity and now living in Babylon uh, remained faithful and continued to worship the Lord their God, but they did so from Babylon. And so as they settled in, they did things like making home for them, homes for themselves. They, they found jobs. They made plans to stay in Babylon. And while they were there, many Jews worked their ways into very powerful positions. For example, we know that Daniel, Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego became prominent leaders in the city of Babylon. And that Esther uh, became the queen of a prominent Persian king. Uh, But God didn't forget his promises. The people had forgotten and and just completely abandoned God's promises, but God didn't forget. He had this plan to save the Jews. And so we read in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20, those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons under the rule of the kingdom, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Notice the key word there, until. They were slaves until the kingdom of Persia. See, the Persian Empire invaded Babylon under King Cyrus, and the Babylonian Empire was therefore 
forced to surrender. A bigger dog moved into the neighborhood. So 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22 tells us, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit. Hold on to that. Stirred up the spirit. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. So hold on to that. The Lord stirred up the spirit. Now, Jeremiah had said, prophesied, it's in the book of Jeremiah, you guys are going to be in captivity for 70 years, and then I'm going to let you go. So they had forgotten about that or completely overlooked it. Daniel caught it, uh, but very few people caught it. And so once we get to the book of Ezra, we're getting to the time frame now of of Nehemiah, we read in Ezra chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 3, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, this sounds very similar to 2 Chronicles, the Lord stirred up the spirit. By the way, Ezra is is the book right before Nehemiah, so if you have your Bible, you can turn back one book, uh, what, maybe five pages, uh, and and read this with me. Uh, The Lord stirred up the spirit of King of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms on the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. That's a pretty limited view of God. The God that's in Jerusalem. See, you've got to understand how, how nuts this is. This is, this is so crazy because King Cyrus was not a Jew nor did he profess to follow the Jewish faith or, or take part in the Jewish faith. And it's easy for us to, to maybe assume that right off the bat because it sure sounds like, boy, he, he knows who God is and he's, you know, he's showing some respect. But what, what the history books tell us and what you know, we find other places is that he was just sympathetic to the causes of the Jews. Why? Because the Lord stirred his heart. That's what it says. The Lord stirred his heart. A religious person or not, when a person has their heart stirred by God, they will act. They do something about it. And until they do, I mean, they they suffer from things like insomnia. You know, they'll sit there and uh, have anxiety at night. They won't be able to sleep. They won't eat regularly. And so until finally, you know, they'll reach a point where they realize that this burden on their heart isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going away until they do something about it, until they do what the Lord has stirred their heart to do. And so when God pressed down and put his hand around the king, uh, around King Cyrus's heart and just gave it a squeeze, King Cyrus did exactly what God wanted him to do. And so the king, King Cyrus, has announced that the Jews are free to go and return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. But I want us to see one more thing before we move on. Out of somewhere between, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three million Jews, a few more than 50,000 of them, not even 51,000, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2% of all the Jews, chose to go down to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And so you might be asking, why so few? If you're still in the book of Ezra, look down a couple verses to verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5. There we read, 
Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit, everyone whose spirit had stirred to go up, whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Man, that's, that's strong. No exceptions. Everyone whose spirit was stirred by God went to rebuild the temple. And this is always the way that God works through people. He, he stirs them. He stirs them. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. That's what he's always done. Now, I, I believe in free will as much as anyone. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. But when I read that everyone, no exceptions, everyone whose heart was stirred acted in response to God stirring their heart to go, let me just say this. I become very concerned for anyone whose heart isn't stirred into action. Anyone who claims to be following Jesus and yet isn't stirred to action. I become concerned. But guess who wasn't among those whose heart was stirred? Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart wasn't stirred in Ezra. Where was he? Well, now we can turn to the first chapter of Nehemiah. And we'll get some background information and figure out what's going on. And uh, now that we've, you know, we've seen what leads us up to the book of Nehemiah. You guys understand, the city was in shambles. They're going to rebuild the temple. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev. By the way, man, wouldn't it have been great to have Kurt read that? now it happened in the month of kislev in the 20th year the 20th year of the reign of king artaxerxes by the way while i was in susa the capital that hanani one of my brothers and some men from judah came and i asked them concerning the jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about jerusalem they said to me the remnant there is in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the walls and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire so what we see here is that no Nehemiah's heart wasn't stirred to go to Jerusalem he stayed in the city of Susa while a few of his fellow Jews 2% roughly of his fellow Jews whose hearts had been stirred headed to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple now, we're, we're reading out of the NASB here, and I'm not sure. This is one of those instances where I'm not sure that the, the NASB translators have really done justice to this introduction because that word capital actually refers to a palace or a citadel. In other words, we find out immediately that Nehemiah is one of the very few Jews who, like Esther and, and Daniel, have found themselves in very powerful, influential, uh, prominent positions. Now, if you glance down at verse 11, the end, of, the end of the chapter, we find out that the reason that he is in this palace is because he is the cupbearer to the king. He's the cupbearer. The cupbearer is the guy who makes sure that nobody is trying to assassinate the king by slipping a mickey into his drink. And so anytime the king wants a drink of something, Nehemiah's got to drink it first. And if Nehemiah dies or you know, gets violently ill... Uh, then, you know, the king knows, you know, I'm not going to drink that. Uh, but if, if he's okay, you know, give it a few minutes. He's still alive. Okay, now it's safe for the king to drink it. You know, th- this, is, this is a clean drink. And so, as you might imagine, uh, you know, Nehemiah went everywhere 
that the king went. Wherever the king went, Nehemiah was right there by his side, kind of like a secret service type of guy. And so, as you might think, I, I think, you know, if you spend that much time with somebody, you are constantly by their side, you're going to become friends. There's going to be a strong relationship, a very intimate relationship, uh, between the cupbearer and the king. And so we find that there was a very close friendship, a very close relationship, because there's got to be trust. And where there's trust, there's, there's friendship. Uh, so there's this friendship between himself and the king. Now, while Nehemiah's heart hadn't been stirred by the Lord to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, guess whose heart was stirred? His brothers, the heart of Hanani. Uh, was stirred. He's also mentioned in Ezra chapter 10, verse 20. And so in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, when Hanani and some others returned from Judah, where they were rebuilding, working on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, Nehemiah asks two things. He basically asks, how are the people doing and how is the city doing? Now, it's kind of odd that he would ask this, but I think that for the last 15 years, somewhere in the last 15 years, Nehemiah started reading the Old Testament. He started reading the scriptures. And so he found out what this was all about, why this was all significant. Why else would he ask about this city that's been torn down? He's never been there. It was torn down before he was born. It was destroyed before he was born. And as someone who held a prominent position in the palace of the king, you know, I would think, man, he's got a lot to do. He's got business to take care of. Uh, he'd better get to the king's side in case somebody tries to give the king a drink. Uh, you know, but, but he asks about this city, which is known only to him by legend and history books, including the scriptures. But because Nehemiah had a heart for God at this point, Because he had a heart for God. He had a heart that was more concerned for the things that mattered to God than he was for the things, uh, anything else. Anything else that might have been of importance to himself. God's business got top priority. And that's the way it works. That's the way it's supposed to work. God's business gets top priority. And so therefore, if Jerusalem mattered to God, and obviously it did, then Jerusalem mattered to Nehemiah. And if the remnant that had gone down to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple mattered to God, then the people, the remnant who went down to rebuild the temple mattered to Nehemiah. It's as simple as that. What was important to God was important to Nehemiah. And so this report that he gets from Hanani isn't good. The people are suffering. They're in great distress And that's because there's no protection. They're they're getting attacked. They're getting, you know, they've they've got people from the, the inhabitants of the land coming in and mocking them, maybe even attacking them, stealing them. The city was still in ruins, and that included the wall that was around the city as the primary line of defense against intruders. And the gates, Hanani says, the gates have been burned to the ground. And the important thing that we see here is that the temple is open and vulnerable. There's no protection. There are some incredible riches that were returned to the temple when it was rebuilt. All the things that that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out, Cyrus wanted back in there. And so he commanded that those things be taken back to the temple. And so it's clear that there are these riches in the temple, and there's no protection. 
So man, it, it's just a matter of time before somebody comes in and the temple gets destroyed and ransacked by the enemies of the Jews, the inhabitants of the land. Now what I want us to see here is the close connection between the condition of the city and the condition of the people who are working to rebuild the temple. See, if we see Jerusalem as symbolic of ourselves, which we should, that, that's the way we're supposed to see Jerusalem. It repre- it's representative of something. It's representative of us. It's where God wants to dwell. So if we, if we see Jerusalem as symbolic of ourselves, we can be sure that we are coming into contact every day with people who match this very description. Maybe you've had the kind of week or the kind of month where you feel like your life matches this description as well. Maybe when you look at your life, you realize that there are vulnerabilities, that the wall has been somewhat broken down or maybe completely broken down. And so maybe you lay awake at night because you feel so vulnerable and it just fills you with anxiety and you know that you're open to being attacked. That's the type of destruction that we see in people all around us every day. And that's the type of destruction that we see described here in the first few verses of Nehemiah. So whatever your, your struggle is, whatever, whatever sin you're, you're struggling against, maybe it's a problem with anger. Maybe it's a, a just you know, simple pride. Uh, maybe it's some sort of addiction. Maybe you can't let go of some bitterness and you can't, you can't forgive somebody in your life. You know, I'm talking about the parts of your life that you really don't want other people to see or touch, especially on Sunday mornings, areas of life where you feel like you've lost it. You've, you've lost control. You're constantly on the verge of losing control, maybe. And it's so easy for us to get into this mindset where we feel like we have control over our sin, but before we know it, our sin tears down the walls and burns down the gates. And we fall into cycles and habits that are sinful and destructive. And what does that leave us? It leaves us like a sitting duck. And as you inwardly examine yourself, you might realize that, yeah, you know, you play the role pretty well and things on the outside might look okay, but on the inside, you're in ruins. The question is not, will you deal with the challenges and the adversities that you face in life? Because every single person on the face of the planet is going to be faced with challenges and adversities. Some small, some big, some enormous, some so enormous that you don't feel like you have a chance to do anything about it. So the question is not, will you deal with them? Because you will, one way or another. The question is, how? Will you deal with them? How do you fix things when things are not the way they're supposed to be? How do you fix things when they've fallen apart and you find them in ruins? You know, what a, what a great comfort it is to know that there's nothing new under the sun and that the men and women that we read about in the Bible, they faced all the same challenges that we face today. And we can look back and we can see how they dealt with those challenges, how they dealt with those adversities, and we can apply the principles that they, fa- that they used to overcome those adversities to our lives today. And that's why I love the book of Nehemiah. It's a book about God's redemption It's about his promises, how he works in us and through us to fix what's broken, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. It's a book about making things the way they're supposed to be. See, the people in Jerusalem are a reflection of the condition of the city. They're they're broken. They're, They're vulnerable. They're living in distress and disgrace as survivors. But friends, you and I, 
should be living as much more than just survivors. Much more than just survivors. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So temptation, it's got nothing on us. Hurt from our past, hurt in our present, it doesn't have a grip on us. Sin has no power over us because we're enabled to overwhelmingly conquer these things through the power of him who loved us. Who's that? That's Jesus. That's God. And notice that Paul doesn't say that we just conquer. He says we overwhelmingly conquer. Anybody in here watch sports? Everybody watches some kind of sport or have watched some kind of sport at one time or another, right? What's the difference between winning and winning overwhelmingly? Overwhelmingly means it's a blowout. It means it was never even close. You know, if the Mariners win, uh, you know, win win a game by, uh, you know, one run, maybe two runs, they win. But if they run, if they win by fifteen runs, uh, that's overwhelmingly winning, right? So that's that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we are enabled to do through God's grace. That means that we can stop seeing ourselves as victims of our circumstances and we can see ourselves as victors through him who loved us. That doesn't mean, however, let me clarify, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. That doesn't mean that there won't be pain involved. Sometimes having a heart that values the things that God values brings incredible heartache. Let's continue with Nehemiah verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, when I heard these words, when he heard the bad report that uh, Hannah and I had brought him, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah's reaction isn't to say, well, they they should be living as victors. You know, God will will guarantee their safety. He'll guarantee the completion of the temple. He'll guarantee the the fact that nobody is going to come in and raid it. No, upon hearing this report, his knees buckle underneath him. And he weeps. He he falls down. He sits. He mourns. He fasts. And he prays before God, not just for a couple days, not just a couple weeks. This is four months. That's what most commentators say. He He prays for four months. What's going on here? Nehemiah has been stirred. This is the brokenheartedness that a person experiences when God stirs their heart. Because Nehemiah values the things that God values, when he hears about the misery of this 2%, this remnant, the misery that they're feeling and living in, he shares their misery. That reminds me of you know when Jesus comes to visit Lazarus while he's sick, but he gets there intentionally a couple days late, and the family and friends are in mourning, and even though Jesus knows what he's going to do, even though he knows he's got the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, he shares in the sadness and the brokenness of the people for just a moment, and he weeps with them. And so in this despair that Nehemiah feels, he doesn't just bottle it up, you know, keep it to himself. He immediately breaks down. And weeps. He weeps. He brings it straight to God. Straight to God. And this is always the place to start. He's facing the situation openly and honestly with God. He's not pretending to be strong in front of everyone. You know, you, you hear about that. Be strong. You know, be, go ahead. You, you can make it through this. He's not trying to be strong. 
He's trying to be open and honest with God. He's being vulnerable himself. The city's been vulnerable. Now he's going to be vulnerable with God. He's not putting on an act. He's not even looking for people to, to start pointing fingers at, like, oh, if so-and-so would have just sent you know, some of our military down there, oh, they'd be safe. He's not doing that. He's not blaming anyone. He's just weeping and mourning over the situation, the despair that these people are living in. See, this isn't just a description of, of Nehemiah, by the way. This is what God wants from his people when he's stirring their hearts or breaking their hearts. He wants authenticity. He, he wants to be our refuge. Nehemiah's heart is the same as the psalmist who wrote, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the, hand, in, in the night my hand was stretched out without weariness, but my soul refused to be comforted. That's Psalm chapter 77, verse 2. And over and over again, you know, one of the reasons I, I love the Psalms is because over and over again we see this incredible on, uh, honesty and authenticity with God from the authors, even if that means having sinful attitudes. They're open about it. We see them pouring out all of their angry, scared, hurt, and sometimes sinful thoughts right before God. So while it's descriptive of Nehemiah's response, we should see that it's descriptive of what God wants from, excuse me, from us, too. You see, Paul says that you and I are God's worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But before God can do these good works through you, he's got to do something to you. God wanted to use Nehemiah. All along, it had been part of God's plan. And I imagine that's why his heart hadn't been stirred earlier, because God had a plan. It was all part of it. But first, he had to do something in Nehemiah. So my question is this. What has God given you a heart for, a passion for, a desire for? What, what has he stirred up inside of you? What's he put on your heart? What good work did God create you for? Now, that's obviously something that I... I can't answer for you. It depends on your giftedness and, you know, all sorts of things. But if you want to know what God wants to do through you, this is where you start. You start by realizing what you're passionate about and that you know God is also passionate about. And I think part of the reason that Nehemiah is so brokenhearted here is that he wants to do something about it, but he knows that this is a huge undertaking and it's something that he's not going to be able to do all alone. He knows that the city is vulnerable. But what's one person going to do? What can, how many bricks can, can a one person lay before somebody comes and starts tearing it down right behind him? What can one person do? And so to accomplish what God has put on his heart, he knows he's going to have to influence others. He's going to have to be a person of influence. But it starts with prayer. And listen, if prayer is not absolutely essential to the vision that God has put on your heart, if prayer is not so essential that it won't happen without prayer, then your vision for what God has called you to do is way too small. You need to think bigger because prayer needs to be at the center of everything that we do. And so I'd encourage you to study the book of, uh, or the prayer of Nehemiah and to model your prayers after it. We're going to briefly go through it. Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, repeat it verbatim. This is, a, you know, a situational prayer. Um, but look at the structure. Look at how he structures his prayer. First, he acknowledges 
the character of God. We read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 and uh, the first part of verse 6. He says, I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. The ruin that breaks your heart is is often not uh, not your own. The, the, the ruin is often not your own. For most of you, I would guess it's pro- there might be some in your life, but you see a lot in the lives of others around you. People who don't know Jesus, people who aren't here this morning. Maybe it's in the lives of people that you know who used to go to church or once professed faith in Jesus, but as you look at their lives today, you realize, man, this person doesn't even know God. Did they ever really know God? You know, maybe it's that type of, uh, of thing. And it tears you up. It, maybe it keeps you awake at night. It stirs you. It stirs you. It's, it's like something on your heart that won't go away. And so Nehemiah starts his prayer off by acknowledging God's greatness, his, his awesomeness. And he acknowledges that God is a God of loving kindness. And by praying, uh, by praying, there's something else implicitly he's acknowledging, and that is that God is a personal God who wants to hear the prayers of his children, and he asks for us to come to him. So the first thing he does is he acknowledges uh, the character of God. The second thing that Nehemiah does is he repents on his, on his behalf and on the behalf of the people who are living in ruins. Let's continue in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses, uh, the second part of verse 6 and verse 7. He says, I'm confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statues, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. I love that, that Nehemiah confesses just freely and openly. He's not pulling any punches here at all. He's not making any excuses. He's not saying, you know, I, I don't know anything about it. You know, I, I wasn't in Jerusalem when it was ransacked. No, he, he admits that he's got, he's, he's got some responsibility to take on his shoulders too. He's not trying to be self-righteous, claiming, oh, it's not, you know, it's not my fault. Instead, he's humble. And that's the response that we should have when we acknowledge the character of God. When we, when we see that he's sovereign, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, yeah, we, we should be humbled. And it's, and it's important uh, that we see that he, he, he just calls it what it is and takes his share of the responsibility for the circumstances. He doesn't try to come to God and, and somehow excuse himself for the guilt that he has because only God can pardon him. Same with us. When we go to, when we go to God and confess, it's important that we don't try to excuse ourselves because only God can pardon us. We know we've fallen short. The healthiest and the most honest thing that we can do is acknowledge our share of the guilt. Acknowledge our share. See, if we, if we try to absolve ourselves from guilt, there will not be real repentance. Look at what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about, his heartbroken, about this heartbroken confession and repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Verses 9 and 10. He says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. 
For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. See, when we try to pass the buck to somebody else, you know, we're feeling the sorrow, but, uh, you know, maybe it was me a little bit. You know, not, not, it wasn't entirely me. When we try to p- pass the buck off in regards to the issues and the challenges and the adversities that we're faced with, we deny ourselves the honesty and the openness that's necessary for recovering from those issues. Reconciliation is the will of God. Reconciliation. But that can't come until a person or a people confess their sin and repent, because sorrowful, uh, sorrow that leads to repentance is in accordance with God's will, because it leads to salvation. It leads to reconciliation. So third, Nehemiah comes to God acknowledging that God has made some promises. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, he says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. What's that? Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. See, in the book of Deuteronomy, at one point, Moses predicts the entire future of a nation. And I don't know of any other place or any other person who has ever been able to do this, uh, but he predicts the entire uh, future of the nation of Israel in chapters 28 through 30. He says that they would eventually disobey God and that in that act of judgment, God would scatter them among the nations and cause them to go into exile. But then we get to chapter 30, and starting in verse 1, we read, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and I will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. It is totally obvious that Nehemiah basically has this memorized verbatim. He's been, he's been educated in the scriptures, maybe uh, by himself, you know, we're not exactly sure. But what he's doing here is he's reminding God of this promise that he had made, that God had made some 1,500 years or so, a little bit less than that, earlier. He's acknowledging that God is this God of, of power and sovereignty, but he's also a God of love, forgiveness, redemption, and a God who has made some promises See, God's actions are always in response to the actions and the heart condition of the people with whom he is in covenant, except when he acts in unmerited, undeserved grace. So if Jerusalem was in shambles, it was because God was not blessing it and God was not preserving it. If God was not blessing it and preserving it, it was because there was a need for the nation to openly and honestly confess 
and repent of its sin. And so God was allowing these painful circumstances, these incredibly difficult circumstances to occur in order to bring about confession and repentance from the nation. The same thing happens in our lives, by the way. If we see or experience in other, you know, if we see in other people or experience for ourselves the removal of God's blessing and provision, if we see ruin and destruction either in our own lives or in the lives of others, there's always a need for confession and repentance. So that's what he does third. Fourth and finally, Nehemiah acknowledges that he can't do this on his own and that he's going to need some help. And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Let's stop there. We've already seen the part where he says that he's a cupbearer, so let's go ahead and just stop there. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't say, God, will you be with those people? Or God, will you strengthen those people? Or God, will you just give them comfort? His prayer is basically, God, use me. There's a need. You need to step in, but use me. What we see here is that while Nehemiah started praying alone, eventually he had others who were praying with him. That's why he says, uh, you know, be attentive to the prayer of your servant, that's himself, and of your servants who delight to revere your name. Apparently, while he was praying for months, some people came in and started joining him. So he, he's, he's not by himself. And so he's asking for the Lord to grant him success with this man. Uh, who is that man? Who, who's he talking about? He's talking about the king, Artaxerxes. The king is going to have to give up a friendship. He's going to have to let Nehemiah go. He's going to have to find another cupbearer, which means he's going to have to find somebody else that he trusts completely. What are the odds of a king letting that happen? Not good. Because what the king wants is usually what the king gets. And so the king uh, is, is going to be an obstacle. It's a challenge. Is, there, is it going to happen? Is it not? There, there's uncertainty. And so if Nehemiah is successfully going to carry out what the Lord has placed on his heart, he needs the Lord to go before him and soften the heart of somebody else, of the king. See, no matter where you see the sin of, or where you see the destruction of, of sin. Whether it's something you see in your own life or in the life of others, what starts with a heart that desires the things that God desires has to turn into action. It has to be translated into action and influence. But bathe that process in prayer first. Pray plan, and act based on what God is stirring your heart to do. But don't just pray at the beginning. Pray all the way through. Keep praying. Keep yourself close to God all the way through. See, the first chapter of Nehemiah is about the heart and the values of the type of person God can use and wants to use. God, uh, God's people share God's value system, and the response is sacrificial love for the benefit of others. Sacrificial love for the benefit of others. That's what Nehemiah is displaying here, and that's what God displayed when he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to pay for our sins, to take the wrath of sin upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. Friends, this, this opening chapter is, is a beautiful prayer, 
but it's about more than just prayer. It's about having a heart that values the things that God values and acting on it. Acting on it. We are all called by God to be people of influence. Every single one of us. We're called into discipleship, into the process of discipleship. And that involves, necessarily involves, influence. And so as we close today, I want to take a moment just to ask you guys to think about uh, people whose lives you have influence in. Who do you know who needs godly influence? Who do you know who isn't living the type of life, who doesn't have the type of relationship with the Lord that you know they're supposed to have? They need to have. Would God possibly be stirring your heart to act in some way? See, this is the foundation of God's work in us, through us. He stirs us to be brokenhearted with a brokenhearted passion for something that He is brokenhearted about, for something that He, or something or someone that He values. And so, what I'm going to ask you to do is to take a moment. Maybe write down or just think in your own heart about whom God might be asking you to pray for this morning. Just in the silence of your hearts and we'll close together in prayer in just a moment. God, as we come before you right now, we acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge that you know our thoughts. You know what you have placed on our hearts. You alone created the heavens and the earth, Lord, and there is none like you. You're righteous. You're holy. And if it wasn't for your grace and your mercy, your great mercy with us, who among us could stand before you? Surely we're all deserving of your wrath because every single one of us has sinned against you and every single one of us does it regularly. And if it were not for your great mercy, none of us could stand before you. But you have promised to bless us with your abundant mercy because we've trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, who died and took the wrath that we deserved. And so my prayer, God, is that you would make us a clean and righteous people, Lord, set apart for your purposes. Ignite passion in our hearts for the things, God, that you are passionate about. Teach us to value what you value above and beyond our own personal preferences. Do these things, O God, in in order that we might be a church that influences others. We're just a small group of people who are abandoned to your will and who want to desire the things that you desire. And so go before us and lead us and strengthen us, God, that we might be faithful to the mission you've called us to. For your glory. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.